<laughs> All right, everybody, welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast. This is episode 215. I'm your host, Tommy Tahoe Alemo, and this is the show where young sellers come to learn about you know, how to make more money, how to hit quota, how to get promoted, be more fulfilled, all the things that you want out of a sales career. Uh, it's right here. This is where we learn, and this is how we get better. So thanks for joining. Um, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, and then we'll get straight into the show. Uh, the first sponsor of the podcast today is Gong. Uh, I love Gong so much that I quit my job and went to work there. So, <laughs> you know, that that should speak volumes enough. Uh, Gong is the revenue intelligence platform. Um, I don't have a fancy ad read, but essentially it is irresponsible nowadays to run a sales organization and not leverage Gong. Um, it helps you to coach your reps to get better. It helps you to make sure that the deals that are on the edge every month and every quarter get pushed in your favor. Uh, it helps you to identify how your uh, market is responding to both you and your competitors. Um, and that's just the beginning. There's so much more that's going to be had and, and so much that's going to happen in the future. Um, Gong can help you to get there. So if you'd like to learn more about them, you can go to gong.io or shoot me a message on uh, LinkedIn and I'll get you hooked up with the right person to, to learn more. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by Postal.io. Um, so, you know, here's what Postal does, right? So your most valued prospects and customers, they're busy, they're hard to impress, right? And so shipping low-cost swag items made overseas won't do the trick. So what Postal does, they make it easy to send high-quality local gifts at scale to your target prospects that stand out and build a real connection. So whether it's brew from your hometown or a seasonal bouquet from the florist on the corner, your thoughtfulness won't go unnoticed. Uh, you can learn more from them at postal.io. We're also running a, a cool promotion with them that you will get a free coffee, free Starbucks gift card on me. If you leave a review for this show on Apple Podcasts, you just head to Apple uh, Podcasts on your phone, leave a five-star review, shoot that to me in some way, whether it's on LinkedIn or email or however you can get in touch with me. And then I will send you the link and you'll get a free coffee. So it's 42 seconds of work and you get a free coffee out of it. So please make sure to uh, give some love to Postal at Postal.io. Uh, now let's get into today's episode. Stoked for this one. Uh, Sam Jacobs. Sam's a legend. Um, if you're in the SaaS world, uh, you likely know Sam. Uh, you likely heard of Revenue Collective, um, which is a community that I'm a member of. I actually co-host their podcast as well that you can check out. But uh, Sam and I had a great conversation, and we talked about a number of different things from his start in uh, the music industry, how he got into sales and and uh, the software world, uh, his tips for networking, his tips to help grow your career uh, through you know using other people and building relationships. And my favorite part was when he talks about the good day cheat sheet, right? So uh, there's like five things that he does every single day in order to make it a good day. And uh, they're not what you would expect. So without further ado, let's get straight into my conversation with Sam Jacobs. Let's go. All right, Sam Jacobs, welcome to Millennial Sales. Good morning. Good morning, Tom. How are you? I am doing outstanding. How are you? I'm doing another beautiful day in New York City. Overcast skies, but it's. Uh, I was looking at the weather forecast. Next week, it's going to be in the 60s. So we've got our eye on spring. Nice. I was in. Uh, I was in New York last week. Uh, it was 
some family birthday celebrations that we were doing and I stopped for the first time at Ivan Ramen. I've never been have there. You, oh, you haven't. <laughs> you know, have you heard of it? No. Oh, okay. Okay. He's got this cooking thing on chef's table on Netflix and um yeah, I, I, he's it was awesome. I don't know if you're into ramen at all, but just I'm a, I'm a homebody, so I stay within like, you know, three square blocks of where I live in the West <laughs> Village and everything outside of there is probably just as it's San Francisco is just as close as anything as, you know, 18th street. <laughs> okay. Okay. I got you. I got you. Um, cool, man. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show. There's a, a lot of different topics I want to get into. Um, one that really stuck out to me is, is your love of music. And as I was going through your LinkedIn, like at the way, way, way bottom of it is uh, something called the annex group. Uh, so, I, you know, after a year or two, it looked like of, of being in you know, finance and maybe as an analyst, uh, you started your own like production company. Uh, so it, it was, to hear you talk about that. it was a, well, um, yeah, I went to UVA undergrad university of Virginia. And when I was there, it was, you know, I was grad, I graduated in 1999, which was the first dot-com boom and everybody was starting companies and there was, you know, fever in the air. And I went and moved up to New York to be an investment banker, but I had all these friends that were musicians and I just had this dream, you know, we were, I don't know, listening to too much punk rock and reading too many books about David Bowie and uh, Brian Eno or something like that. But we had this idea that we were going to like go back to Charlottesville after, after a year and, and get a farm. And we're going to live on a farm in a commune. And there's going to be like a recording studio in the basement. And we're going to make records. And this was at the time, again, this, these are very specific references, but um, there was like a collective called Elephant Six that, that was came out of the South where there's a band called Neutral Milk Hotel. And there was, um, there was like Matador Records and there was um, Merge Records, which is out of, uh, out of North Carolina. So there's like these families of indie rock musicians that were putting out amazing music. And so we had this idea that, you know, we would be that for Charlottesville. We would move back to Charlottesville. Uh, we did start in, and it was called Annex Records. And it was a record label that was supposed to support this group of musicians that were all my friends. We we're all going to quit our jobs, move to the move to the this farm in Keswick, Virginia, which is what we did. And it was a great lesson in my life. I call it lessons in humility and poverty. Uh, I also call them the bad old days instead of the good old days. Um, yeah. It we were dirt broke, absolutely broke. My rent was four hundred bucks a month. Many many times um, leading up to you know the first of the month, I did not have four hundred dollars, and I did not know where it was going to come from. We used to have uh, my this guy used to work at a bagel shop and. Um, we, uh, he would get, he would bring back free bagels and sometimes he would bring back cream cheese, but sometimes he wouldn't. And so we would do this thing that we had called a bagel salad sandwich, which was just a bagel with a bagel in the middle. And that was, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was, that was, uh, that was, you know, one of our staples. So, um, you know, I did that for, for a while and I've always had a love of music, but, um, I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't really honestly have the work ethic. I didn't have the connections. If you're going to start you know, get started in the music industry, uh, you probably start in New York or LA or Nashville. You probably start managing bands first before you try to start a record label because record label is pretty capital intensive. But you know, the point of the record label is you are paying for people to make music and then you try and distribute that music through retailers. 
So it was also, you know, of course, 1999, incredibly poorly timed. Uh, it was the dawn of mp3.com and people started burning CDs. So, you know, it didn't work in any direction, um, but it did work in teaching me that uh, I didn't get to be whatever I wanted to be just by snapping my fingers and that, you know, whatever I wanted to be, I was going to have to put in hard work. So from that perspective, it was great. Uh, from the perspective of was it successful? It was absolutely not successful. And I guess the other part of it was that I realized after I quit my job and after, you know, me and this band moved into this house, that the band just wasn't very good. And that was also a, you know, a bummer of a realization with, if you're trying to support a rock band and the drummer can't keep time, you know, doesn't have rhythm. That's a, an important part of being a drummer is having rhythm. And uh, if you're a drummer that doesn't have rhythm, then maybe the band that's that drummer isn't, isn't going to be as good. So I, I did that. Uh, it didn't work. I moved back home uh, to live with my parents. Uh, I lived in the I, I set up my record, you know, my record management company, my artist management company in the basement of my parents' house. Um, you know, my dad at first wasn't sure that he wanted me to move home, but then he, he ended up liking it. And then ultimately what happened was I moved back to New York in 2003. And that's when really things uh, got going from a professional perspective, because that's when I joined a company called Gerson Lerman Group, which was, um, you know, which was a rocket ship, which went from 20 million when I joined to 300 million when I left. They'll probably do anywhere between six and 700 million in ARR this year. And that was like the beginning of my career after, you know, uh, shutting down the record label. So, you know, you're doing the record label stuff for, you know, a couple of years. And it sounds like you learned that, you know, a lot of lessons. One being you can't just snap your fingers and be good at something, right? So you're in this point where you come home come home to live with your parents, you're, you know, you're dead broke, you're probably feeling defeated. Where is your head at? Like, why did you join that company? Right? Because I imagine you're probably thinking, hey, I want to do something that I can get good at. And it might take me some more time, but I want to kind of follow a more traditional process of like learning the skills and then getting good at it. So like, what, what drove you to that company? Well, I mean, honestly, I wish I had a better answer for you. The thing that drove me to the company was that my friends that I went to UVA with uh, that are all now, you know, we're all in different places in our life, uh, to put it <laughs> to put it mildly. But uh, so my friend Jim Sharp, who's he's the CEO of a company called Eventry, which is a virtual event and kind of event management software business. And um, I was actually speaking to him, you know, before we got on this podcast and he was an early employee at Gerson Lehrman Group. And so when I said I was just networking, saying, hey, you know, I'm looking for a job up there. At that point, my background looked pretty non-traditional in the sense that like I had one year of sort of uh, middle market investment banking. You know, I wasn't working at Lehman Brothers. I was working at a company called Stern Stewart. And uh, and GLG just was, you know, one of the one of the great things about an, an early stage company that has product market fit and is growing really rapidly is that they have the opportunity to hire, you know, uh, what you might call athletes, like, you know, Swiss army knives, people that are really don't yet have like a fully developed function, but are smart and intelligent and, you know, can, can do good things if you put them in, if you give them the opportunity. So it, they were growing really quickly. I wanted to move to New York, back to New York. Jim got me an interview with Alexander St. Amon, the CEO. Uh, you know, one thing led to another, I was there seven and a half years, came in at the ground level, ended up running a bunch of different product lines for them. And, managing big teams all over the world. And it was a lot of fun. And yeah, and then and that was one chapter. And then the next chapter was really the end of uh, those seven and a half years. And and that was, that was really, 
you know, GLG was, was, I guess, one part of the beginning, but the real beginning for my career and for my development was when I left GLG. And that's because um, GLG was so successful and so profitable. You know, this was uh, not the era of like burning a million dollars a month uh, to try and take market share. GLG was generating more cash than they knew what to do with. And so as a mid 20s, late 20s person, I was getting paid way more money than I than I frankly deserved. And I didn't have a concept for it. And so what happens when sometimes you have like that level of early success is that you get a big head and you think that you've got a little bit more credibility or clout or expert experience than maybe you really do have. And what happened was that um, my mentor ended up leaving the company. I got a new boss. The new boss did not like me. We did not get along. And I was basically forced out of the company in 2010 after seven and a half years, and um, which is totally fine. But I and that, that was the that was really the the biggest inflection point because two things happened at that point. One is that I was forced out of this super successful company, and and really had to reset and figure out what I wanted to do. And at that point, I could have become like middle management at a startup, like maybe senior director level or something like that, or um, go way earlier stage and be part of senior management. And I decided that I just, I just didn't want to be middle management. I just didn't want to be part of like a 300 person company and be a director at a 300 person company. I wanted to be at the top, even if it was at the top of a tiny little thing. And so, and I likened it to, you know, high school football where, you know, my junior year, um, we went to the state finals, but I didn't play very much. And my senior year, uh, we, you know, we were six and four and I don't think we made the playoffs, but I played every down of every game. Uh, you know, every special team started on defense was all district, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I obviously would prefer my senior year to my junior year. Cause I just want to be in the game. You know, I want to, I want to be on the field. I want to have my decisions be of consequence, even if they're somewhat smaller stakes. So, um, so I went to a super early stage company after leaving and I took a massive, massive pay cut. And I also was going through a divorce at the time. So all this money that I'd made uh, through you know, my time at GLG basically went to the lawyers and went to my now ex-wife. And um, it, that was another, you know, as, um, as they say at the Apple store, it was a hard reset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's gotta be a, you, you've had a couple of those points of, of just like total reset, right? Even in like those first, what, 10, 15 years of your career. Um, how do you, in both of those cases, like what's the self-talk like? How do you, how do you get yourself like back up on your feet when, you know, all the, that stuff's going on? You, uh, it's hard. I don't, I mean, <clears throat> it's not good. You know, it's not fun because <laughs> yeah. obviously everybody wants all of their whole life to be up and to the right. You know, they want everything they, they want to be, everybody wants to be one of those super special, amazing people that doesn't have any setbacks. But so that's kind of part of it, which is there's there's a bunch of different like realizations that you have. And one of them is that as you reset, you realize that like you're back to the beginning again. And that 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 feeling of, you know, thinking that you're back at the beginning of whatever journey that you were on is it, first of all, it's not true, but because um, you're developed, you have experiences now and everything, every bad experience is probably better learning and better insight than a good experience. But then it's just um and then you just constantly have to figure out like, who do you want to be? And for me, I just, 
I, I mean, you know, I, I need to work. So I, I didn't really have a choice in terms of whether I had a job or not. There wasn't self-talk that was required to, you know, get me to interview for, for jobs yeah. or help me find a job. But in terms of like the type of job or the type of opportunity, it was, I just, there's, you know, you can't fight your nature as sort of the, the bottom line, you know, like the, whatever the frog and the scorpion, uh, you know, parable, but so I, there was never a moment at which, I mean, I don't know what giving up would look like. Maybe giving up for me would be working in middleman. That just wasn't going to happen. You know, it wasn't yep. going to happen because I just, I didn't want, I'd rather have my life be a series of 20 flameouts and still striving for, you know, something great, something special, something unique, than just accept, you know, what I would perceive to be mediocrity. So the self-talk was just like, just get back on the horse, you know? And um, that's where, I mean, and that's, it was very difficult because the, it was get back on the horse, but it wasn't in a positive way. I wasn't, I wasn't like, good job, Sam, you got him. You know, I wasn't, I was like, basically it felt like a grind, you know, it was, I was grind. I mean, I've been grinding for a very, very long time and, um, and it was difficult and, you know, that's, I mean, you just get up every day, try to find other things to make you happy, try to, try to find the joy in in the work, try to, exercise you know one of the things i started doing in 2010 was running i'd never really run before now i run you know 35 to 40 miles a week like so you know every setback teaches you something which sounds cliche but it really is true and that said in the moment all you have is your determination and your resolution and your your knowledge that like i really couldn't be anybody else if i wanted to so you know just got to keep trying yeah i i've always found just on that running point that life seems to be better when I have something outside of work. Uh, that's like a process that's going on. So like I, I got into running a few years ago, did a marathon, some Spartan races, things like that. And then like, when I stopped doing it, it's like, Oh man, everything else is like, it, there's, there's not that outlet. Um, so I'm curious, like, have you found that to be true? And um, maybe just like, as a more tactical question, do you listen to music do you listen to a podcast like do you go headphone free and you just like are clear with your thoughts when you do something like that uh i listen to music unless i'm running with friends and then uh so i you know my friends and i do we do speed work wednesday nights uh so we do like you know eight times 400 which is you know eight times a quarter mile or four times five times a half mile uh and then we do long runs on the weekends together and then the rest of the time I'm listening to music and I listen to dance music and, you know, I like the beats. And, uh, but the, the thing for me, it, to your point about like, for me, um, you know, there was a long period of time. I have this Google doc that I keep where, you know, I'm like writing different goals. And uh, I was convinced that the reason I wasn't successful in my own mind, you know, which was always telling myself I wasn't successful is a great way to not feel good about yourself. Um, was like, you got, I, I felt like I'd, I'd listened to uh, actually John Barrows came to speak at a company where I was uh, like CRO SVP of sales. And he's like, you know, getting in shape is not a goal, you know, wanting to bench press uh, 185, 15 times, you know, and then do 12 pull-ups. That's a goal by April 30th. You know, this whole idea that like, you need smart goals, you need specific goals. So I had these super specific goals about like how quickly I was going to run a half marathon and how much money I was going to be worth and how many pull-ups I was going to do. And, um, it, when I go back and read it, cause it's a Google doc. So it's like years old at this point and I can go back and read it. And it's just, 
it's just really a, a bummer to read. It's really unpleasant because it just feels like I'm just constantly being like, dude, you're not good enough. You know, you're not good enough, you piece of shit. Why can't you do 15 pull-ups? And so one of the things that really helped me recently, uh, which is probably two years ago, I just threw out all of that crap for like my new year's resolutions and my daily goals. And basically I have a list of seven things. I think it's seven. It used to be five. It used to be read, write, exercise, be nice to other people, be nice to yourself. And like, and by the way, if I didn't do all of those things, it wasn't the end of the world, but like basically every day I was like, did I read something? Okay. Let me pick up a book. Did I write something? Okay. Let me journal. Did I go for a run today? Let me go for a bike ride. If I don't feel like going for a run. And then was I an asshole to other people? And, you know, am I being nice to myself? So that was, that was 2020. Those were my resolutions. And it was a lot easier and a lot nicer and it felt a lot better. And this year I've added two things, which is meditate and drink water. So it's like, if I've done most of those things, then I had a good day. You know, if I didn't do any of those things, then I didn't have a good day, but you know what? I can have a good day tomorrow. And that for me, that framework of like reducing the intensity of, and sort of the, the tone, the tone of the conversation with myself, where it wasn't like, you're not good enough, but more like you're doing your best. You're great. Let's give this a shot. Um, has had my, my results, my specific results uh, over the past, you know, uh, year, year and a half have been way better than before. That's so interesting. It's like when you, when you stop focusing so heavily on, like as a salesperson, when you stop thinking about the quota so much, it's funny, that's when you have better conversations with yeah. prospects and, and with customers. So as someone that, you know, I'm looking up on my wall and I've got these sticky notes of the goals that I have for this month. And like locked in on, you know, podcasts, sales, you know, workouts, things like that. Um, it could be a reminder to, to me or, or to other folks that are similar that um, you know, maybe when you just focus on like kind of the fundamentals, because none of that stuff you said was making money or the things that you're probably doing the majority of the day when you're working, um, right? Yeah. Maybe not being an asshole to others. So um, it, it's, it's just like you said, yeah, what you just said that about sales, how, like if you just try to have like, two great conversations a day, you know, like as a salesperson, which doesn't, you know, again, and this might not work for everybody. This is just what works for me. The other part that I've realized, the thing that I've realized is like, there is no, there's not one way to achieve whatever you want to achieve in life. And there's not one way to be happy. This is just my way. My way for me didn't work saying, you know, I mean, listen, by the way, I'm highly quantitative, highly numerical. We have goals. I can tell you every number uh, that happens within revenue collective, that, but, but for me thinking about it and relating it to the audience of like, I'm a salesperson, like there is a lot of pressure and like, I need, I need 10, you know, I need 10 meetings a week, you know, and if I don't have 10 meetings, what am I going to do now? There's still a, a requirement that, you know, if, if you're not going to, if you don't have 10 meetings a week and determine that based on your close rates, you need 10 meetings a week that you're just going to do it no matter what, but just focusing on like, Hey, I'm just trying to have a good conversation. You know, if this person doesn't want to buy Maybe it's not the right time, but if I have a really good conversation, I'm genuinely listening and genuinely in the moment, and I'm genuinely curious and empathetic, I bet good things will happen. I feel like that that's pretty powerful stuff. It really is. It's really hitting home with me because I have, like what you're saying about the Google sheet, I have in notebooks right behind me on the bookshelf of like, <laughs> you know, all the goals. And um, in a sense, it is cool to see how far you may have come in, in years, but it, to another point, it's like, well, you got to know that if you're doing your best, um, 
you know, that's really all that matters, right? And to be able to be proud and, and to not be an asshole to yourself. So it's, it's something that honestly, I'm going to be reflecting on. So I think that's a great piece. Um, I want to pivot a little bit because there's a stat that gets, if you scroll through five LinkedIn posts, one of the people will say, you know, the average tenure of a VP of sales or CROs 18 months. So everyone's heard that stat. And I think that contributed in part to why you started Revenue Collective. Um, but before we get to RC, like, I just want to talk about that stat, because that's really disheartening for someone that's early in their career that has aspirations to be a VP of sales, a CRO, to run a business someday that like, oh, you're going to put in like 10 years or 15 years of like really hard work. And then you're going to get to this place. And then it's, you're probably going to get fired in a year. So like, can we just talk about the issue at hand? Like, why is that the case? And, and like, you know, how do we, how do we solve it? But, but I guess first let's, let's kind of frame the problem. There's a lot of reasons and I don't know all of them. And I don't, I think um, it's important to point out like, this is not, um, there's no, I don't have any antagonism. You know, like I'm not mad at anybody. Uh, and, and so you, and just to the point, Tom, like my job, my career is, you know, after the record label, let's put that aside, asterisk. By the way, if you do scroll down, it's really funny because um, like I have a joke in my LinkedIn profile, right? When I'm talking about the bands that I was in and it's like, hey, if you're reading this far, you know, I don't know. I have like some Easter egg in my LinkedIn profile because so thank you for scrolling all the way down. But the point is like seven and a half years at GLG. Four and a half years at a place called Axial, 18 months at Livestream, nine months at the Muse, 10 months at Behavox. So I am the poster child for this declining tenure syndrome. Why is it happening? Part of it, probably the biggest reason is just the, uh, it's something about the world itself. So that, what does that mean? We all have shorter, I mean, it sounds weird to say we all have shorter attention spans, but we all have shorter attention spans. We're all used to more instant gratification. We're all used to more binary outcomes. I hate to, you know, whether it's, it's not about cancel culture, but it's just about making snap judgments based on limited information and making them with strong degrees of conviction that are unwarranted. And um, that's just like how that's one part of how the world is that the world is re disassembling and reassembling more quickly than ever. And that's particularly true in the labor market because companies themselves feel the need to adapt to rapidly changing circumstances. And they don't feel like they have the ability. They don't have the time. I don't think they feel to be patient. And so they feel like the thing, if it, if it either works right away or it doesn't. So I think that that's pervasive in the world and humankind these days, regardless of the labor market. Then if you zoom in on the world that we inhabit of, you know, the surge of venture capital and, um, you know, private investment into private companies to help them grow more quickly, I think you see that all of that is exacerbated. And that's exacerbated because, you know, maybe they would say like the, the nice way of framing it would be like in the old days, companies grew more slowly. And so you had time to acclimate your senior leadership to different phases of growth. But if you're growing super quickly, you are moving through stages of growth that might have taken years that are now taking months. And so you're more quickly getting to the point of, you know, a specific individual's uppermost level of, you know, what they called it, like the Peter principle, like their point of incompetence. And so perhaps because of this rapid growth, we are moving through these phases more rapidly and we need to replace people more quickly because we're entering different stages of company growth more quickly. I tend to think that that's, I'm, my, I'm skeptical 
that that's um, that that's true, but it could be true. I think fundamentally um, people have lost. I just, you know, to that point, if even if it's not true, they believe it to be true. What people believe to be true and, and specifically, you know, CEOs who are very, very nervous about making sure that their company becomes the beautiful company that they all hoped it would be. And venture capitalists is that you need to make decisions quickly. You need to be decisive. And if something's not working, you make the call quickly. And that, um, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons. So th those are some of the reasons. The consequence of all of it is that, um, but, and then let me say one last thing. Fundamentally, additionally, the reason that it happens, particularly in revenue functions, is because I do not believe that people have a full appreciation for how companies make money. And as a consequence, they think, and, and we play into this, salespeople play into it by, um, you know, by being the highest paid people at the company nominally, you know, one, one or two quarters and having the highest OTE to have, having the highest on target earnings. But I think that, you know, we live by the sword, die by the sword. We come in negotiating for really, really high cash compensation packages. And the implication is that sales is the thing that makes the company money. And I don't believe that it is. I think that sales is one part of what makes the company money, but the company makes money because there's a great product that people really like. There's a great marketing team that tells lots of people about it and creates opportunities. And then the salespeople turn those opportunities into money, but that life cycle is not specific to sales. And so people, but people think that it is. So people think if we're not making money and I just hired this expensive salesperson, the reason we're not making money must be because I didn't hire the right expensive salesperson. Let me go out and find another expensive salesperson. Um, all of those factors are, you know, conflagrating or interacting with each other. And I think that, I mean, like you said, that's part of what I'm doing with Revenue Collective is trying to reset that. But I'm not just trying to reset it by like helping VPs of sales get fired less per se. I'm also, frankly, trying to help people re think about their compensation differently because, you know, I've talked to a lot of, a lot of sales leaders they're like, you know, my OTE, my OTE is 400, my OTE is 500, you know, and we don't pay that at Revenue Collective. And they might think I'm taking a pay cut to work at Revenue Collective. And I'm like, well, maybe, but I'm also not going to fire you in 18 months. You know, I'm going to be, I'm going to, it's, we are going to pay, you know, you're going to get a, so for example, like the, the revenue people, Every executive at Revenue Collective is paid the same, which is you get a base salary and then you get a 20% of your base salary as an annual bonus at the end of the year if you hit your goals. The sales, you know, LG, our sales leaders paid like that. Uh, Carly Dell, our VP of marketing is paid like that. Everybody's paid like that. And that's very controversial, right? Most sales, most sales leaders are paid 50-50, 50% base, 50 per, even, you know, you're paid like that when you're an AE. Maybe that makes sense. I think it probably makes more sense. But when you're a leader of an organization trying to scale revenue and you're and half of your money is paid in quarterly commissions, I just that just doesn't it's just wrong. It doesn't make sense. It's not how you're not going to get good decision making from people that are trying to hit a number for a quarter so that they can get a really big check. You're going to get good decision making when you pay people the right level of base salary so they can live comfortably and they can make long term decisions for the company, which is what we want them to make anyway. Anyway, that is a long rambling answer to your question, but there are, you know, those are some of the reasons why tenures is so short. So like, is this a, is this a bad goal or is this the wrong goal for someone that's in their say mid late twenties that, you know, we know that it's going to take however long it takes to get up the ladder to a VP of sales or, or CRO, um, knowing that the majority of 
maybe maybe the majority is wrong, but in my mind, it looks like the majority of tech companies uh, are really kind of like treating things like the problem. And there's that that minority, like maybe revenue collective, that are seeing the long term vision. Is that the wrong goal? Like, how no. do we how do we how do we you know defend against this? It's not the wrong goal. You have to adjust and modify your goals. Um, and again, I I doubt this is not an all availed. Uh, advertisement for for the business that I run. It's just like the reason that I do what I do is for this reason. You have to rethink what your career means. Like you have to just redefine, you know, because because in the old days, you got your identity from working at a really successful company and being with them and they were successful and you were successful and you bled your identity bled into that. And I think the future is that you have to think of yourself much more, you know, like a professional athlete like a professional musician, which is that you're not, you are aligned with, you know, almost like project-based work, you know, like Mm. I I don't, because I guess my point is like, I'm not sure that 17 months is the end of the world. Like, I don't know that I want to work places more than a year and a half. I want to work at revenue collective more than a year and a half, but like, I, I, you know, did I want to work at live stream? Probably. I mean, that was, that was the right time to leave. It's okay. Um, The point is that, like the compensation needs to shift. That's the point. And, and it doesn't just mean it doesn't 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 just mean go up. It means like, listen, we're all going to be on our own. You're going to be on your own. You're going to need a community, whatever. You're going to need something, whatever you call it, community, safety net, infrastructure. You're going to need resources that are your resources. They're not they don't belong to the company. Right. The other thing is like, yes, companies, uh, you know, will, will support you and invest in professional development. But your career is more than ever your responsibility. And you're going to have to figure out how to build a career. And that means that, and also in addition to that, that means that like, so that might be okay. It's still going to be a good thing to be a VP of sales. It's still going to be fun to be a leader and to lead a group of people. And obviously, but one of the, but you're going to have to get good at a bunch of different skills that maybe you didn't expect. So first of all, we're going to have to rethink compensation because again, if you're going to be fired every 17 months, then we probably need to make severance a meaningful part of your compensation package. And you probably need to negotiate it in advance, right? So that you can say, listen, I don't mind. Because the reason that it's the problem is that the disconnect between the value creation and the compensation, right? So here's my favorite example. Let's say you're doing 2 million in ARR, early stage company, and uh, and you're, you're the new VP sales and you help them go, this company go from 2 million to 10 million. And then at that point, feels like maybe you're in over your head or the CEO has lost a little bit of confidence on you and they ask you to leave. So, okay. Is there a meaningful difference between 2 million and 10 million? Is that the same thing as between 10 and 18? No, it's not the same at all, right? 2 million is not a company or it is a company, but it's barely a company. It's, it's a kid that's like, just learned to swim. Like you throw them into the deep end. Maybe they'll get to the edge of the pool. Maybe they'll drown, but um, there's a tremendous amount of risk in a $2 million company. And a $10 million company, especially recurring revenue, especially if you don't, if it's not just one customer, but you got lots of customers, that's those are pretty hard to kill. They're pretty hard. That's pretty much a company. Now, it might not be a huge billion dollar company, but it's a company. It's a thing. It will exist for an extended period of time. And if you're part of the team that helped do that, whatever money you made in your cash compensation does not really relate to the equity value that you helped create. And 
Um, and if you are there a year and a half, then most of your equity didn't vest. You know, uh, you hit the cliff after a year. If you got fired, you didn't get anything at all. Uh, so you're 17 months into a 48 month fest. And, um, and then if you leave, of course, the tax laws are terrible. So you probably don't have the money to exercise anyway. And if you do exercise, you don't, you st it's still a lottery ticket, but you're out all this money in taxes. Anyway, so the point is like, it's not the end of the world that people's tenure are shrinking, but we need to rethink the compensation. Maybe there should be milestone payments. That's one of my favorite things, right? Like, hey, when I, if I'm joining it to pay me whatever you want to pay me, but when we get to 10 million, I would like an additional $200,000 cash bonus. And the point that I'm trying to instill into people is that the thing about equity is that equity is, the point of equity is that once in a while, somebody gives you a ton of money right? Whatever a ton of money is for you, $150,000, 200,000, 500,000, a million bucks, 2 million bucks, right? That's why we do equity. That's why you have equity in anything you do that it's the chance that that will happen. So is, is equity meaning ownership, you know, the right to purchase common shares at the bottom of the cap table in a company, is that the only way to create a lottery ticket or some kind of chance or probability that somebody will give you a bunch of money? No, it's not. There are other ways to do it. So let's rethink what those opportunities are and let's create structures that map the value that we create and the risk that we take on in our personal career to the likelihood of getting a chunk of cash and those things can be like equity even if they're not so for an example you know the last place that i worked full time you know i negotiated 12 months severance paid in one lump sum so uh, i was there 10 months you know and the, they're doing great god bless them good people that's not the point. The point is that uh, when I left, I got 12 months of my base salary paid in one lump sum. And that's basically the same thing as a liquidity event. I mean, it is a liquidity event. It's just not yeah. a stock-based liquidity event. And if we can think about more ways of mapping risk to reward and value creation, then maybe 17 months isn't so bad. But 17 months is bad under the current terms of the deal. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I, I want to talk about networking for a second. I'd be remiss not to, to talk about that with, you know, you who's, I don't know if I'd call you the king of networking, but maybe somewhere in that, in that realm, just based on your network and the community that you've created. Um, you know, I've, I've been a member of Revenue Collective for about a year now, and I feel like since I joined, I've noticed 37 different <laughs> sales and marketing communities pop up, you know, whether it's uh, ones that are focused on SDRs, whether it's, you know, a, a live event like Thursday night sales, whether it's, you know, other communities that are maybe more direct competition to you folks. Like, I'm just curious, like, if you take off the revenue collective hat for a second, I was talking with a fellow AE last week, and she was like, you know, I'm feeling this lack of community, I'm not sure what to join. There's all these things. I'm not sure like how to do it. Um, and, you know, I was trying to advise on that, but like, if there was, if there was someone in sales listening and they wanted to get in, you know, inter involved in a community of some sort, like, how do you advise like where they go? And then the second step is like, how do you make the most of that community without it taking up six hours a day, like messaging people all day long and, and all that stuff? Well, uh, you know, I have a clear conflict of interest when I answer this question, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get that out of the way. Um, most communities I see that are popping up are about the person that starts the community wanting to be more well-known. And uh, it's really about them as opposed to other people. Yeah. And um, even some of the ones that you specifically named, 
And that doesn't necessarily mean anything's wrong with it, but they're about the specific advancement of XYZ influencer that wants, you know, that wrote a book or whatever. Fine. For me, uh, I, I don't really, and, and it's funny that, you know, people like you think of me as like a great networker. The, the point of Revenue Collective is actually not community itself. Like it, that's not the goal. The goal is not quote unquote community. We have a reason that we exist. And that reason is not about community. The reason we exist is to help people achieve what they want to achieve in their career. It's everything I've just been talking about. And so I would ask, what is the reason that this community exists? And because also that's thing number one, because in the absence of a good reason, they're not going to really have a roadmap because they're not, I mean, there maybe the roadmap will just be wait for Revenue Collective to do it and then they'll try to do it too. But they also won't have resources because most of them are free. But, um, you know, so why does the community exist? What is the purpose of it? For me, I'd want to, I don't, I don't, again, like I don't need a community for its own sake. I don't need just more friends. What I need is help exactly what you just said, Tom, which is like, what's the goal here? What are we trying to do? Am I trying to be a VP of sales? Is that the right goal? How should I think about this? I've got 20 years or 30 years or 40 years of, you know, healthy work life left. What should I be trying to do? Like, yeah. how am I, so, how do I make sure that at the end of it, I've, I, you know, if I want to be rich, I'm rich. If I want to have kids, I have kids. If I want to have a happy marriage, I have a happy marriage. If I want to travel the world, I've traveled the world. Because what you don't want to do is, you know, not know what's going on, not have a clear sense of direction. And then you end up in 10 years and you're like stuck on a merry-go-round and you're like, how did, how did this happen? So the point of what I do, it's not about community. We call it community powered products and services. The point of what I do is called career enablement. Community is one of them is a means to an end. The end is your professional happiness. Like, you know, as a member of Revenue Collective, Tom, like, you know, you have a bunch of goals and one of the goals is like, hey, you want to increase people's knowledge, awareness of Tom, right? And you want to make sure that you're, you're increasing your expertise and that you're increasing your brand recognition. So great. So Tom, uh, Tom Alemo is one of the hosts of the Revenue Collective podcast, right? I don't need to be the host of the podcast. Like, I'm happy for you to be one of the hosts of the podcast. Um, anyway, so, so I would think about like, if I'm trying to select a community, I would think, what is the reason that that community exists? And if I identify with that reason, great. If it's a community for its own sake, I would be a little bit more skeptical. And frankly, if it's a free community, I would uh, I understand the benefits of free, but I would be more skeptical too, because uh, for me, and this is just me again, it's like the thing we're talking about your career, like your career is going to be your responsibility and you're going to need to invest in it. And also when something is free, I know that I'm the product fundamentally. Like I know that ultimately, um, you know, there's going to be overly sponsored or the only way, you know, if like, if they want to make money from this thing, there's going to be sponsors. If they're going to be sponsors, I'm going to get spammed by SDRs. But all of that is frankly secondary to like the fundamental question of community is not the reason, you know, community is an input into an outcome. What is the outcome that this, this experience is trying to achieve for me? Mm. And I'd like, and if I can answer that clearly and I identify with it, great, then you should join it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. So I'm curious in terms of general networking and maybe the answer is different as a CEO than it was as a sales leader, but how much time or energy do you spend every week or every month into networking, right? Like aside from all the other things that you have to do, but connecting with new people and, you know, setting up a Zoom coffee or talking to the person that you managed five years ago or whatever it might be like as if you're as a sales leader, let's say, or even as a salesperson, like how much, how much time is, is enough? I, I almost feel like sometimes I don't do any, and then sometimes I do too much, and I, I fail to strike this balance. 
Well, um, it's a good question. I mean, I spend a lot of time, but I don't think about it as networking, to be honest with you. I think about it as helping. I mean, because I spend a lot of my day on the phone with other members of Revenue Collective or sometimes people that aren't members, but just trying to give them advice or help them or talk to them about something. I, I So for me, I don't like, you know, I'm not, I'm actually kind of introverted. It's not like um, I'm super extroverted. I, I, I interact with people because I want to help them. That's, and I know that sounds probably, I don't know, fake, but it's not fake. Um, it's real. And so, uh, you know, I guess I would say to answer your specific question, you should spend a certain amount of your time talking to people uh, every week in a, in a professional context that don't work at your company, whatever that means for you, you know, and yep. that could mean through communities like ours or other communities. It could be reaching out to people on LinkedIn. It could be just making sure you have a spreadsheet of all the people you've ever worked with that you really like and, you know, making sure you email them every quarter. But I do think that you need to, because of the fact that we're changing jobs so often, like your job is not going to be all of the things. It's going to be the thing for now. And you yep. need something that is work related that is about, but is ongoing, you know, is, is your stuff is not, doesn't belong you know, it doesn't belong to the company. It belongs to you. It's your network. It's your development. It's your advancement. So. Yeah. And, you know, something that you talked about a, a minute ago when, when you brought up, you know, doing the Revenue Collective podcast and, you know, a theme that I'm seeing from you is, is consistency, right? Like whether it's running, you know, every day or however many days a week that you're out there, whether in, when I took over the Revenue Collective podcast, you said, hey, doing the Sales Hacker podcast since 2018, and I've never missed a week, or, or maybe you missed one. I, I don't think you have. Um, and, you know, you're talking about that, you know, with your daily thing of, you know, did I treat others well, myself well, things like that. So I see that as kind of a superpower for you. I'm curious if you if you see it the same way. Um, and if so, maybe if you could elaborate on that a little bit on the power of consistency and just doing that little bit every day or every week and how that compounds over time. Um, well, I, it's funny cause I think of myself as incredibly inconsistent. So uh, <laughs> I'm a bad judge. of character. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm a bad judge of character. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, well, I don't have any, I, I don't know if it's a superpower. I know that I need, I need structure in my life. That's, I guess what I would say. Like I have lots of different schemes and systems to just, because I, you know, my biggest fear is just like sitting is wasting my life. So I want to know that, like, how do I know that I didn't waste it? How do I know that I spent, that I did a good thing, you know, and I yeah. want it to be, I want there to be enough structure because I, I think one of my superpowers, well, I don't know if it's a superpower, something I believe in very is, is that if you can, if you can identify the key questions and then answer them before they appear. Then when they do appear, you don't have to debate when you, when they, when they operate. So it's like, I don't have to wonder at the end of the day, I, I have this literally, it's called the good day sheet. And it's like, I put an X. If I read, I put an X, if I wrote, if I put an X, if I exercise, so I don't have to wonder about it. I don't have to be like, was today a good day or a bad day? Am I happy or am I sad? I'm like, well, I, I did five of the seven things and I've decided that means it was a good day. So it was a good day. And it's, you know, that, I mean, I guess like Zuck talks about like how he only wears like blue sweatshirts or whatever. Like it's just like reducing the anxiety of having to, you know, having to define something amorphously. I don't know. For me, that gives me a lot of, a lot of flexibility. It's like, did I go for a run yesterday? No. Okay, great. Go for a run then. 
You know, yeah. what's a good run? A run, a good runs four miles or more. Did I run four miles or more? No, it's 3.6. Okay. Why don't you do another 4.4? <laughs> you know what that does is it just, it makes it so binary and it takes away like all the other things that might impact, like you might be having a great day and then you go on Instagram and you see God knows what, and or you go in your team Slack channel and you see someone on your team just closed a massive deal and now they're doing better than you in the quota race or all the number of things that could go on. So it's like, if you have this system that, hey, I control all these five things or seven things. And if I do, you know, all of them or most of them, then like, you know, F off. It's a good day. It's a good day. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, that's, that's all. I mean, and the thing that you said, which is like comparing yourself to others. I mean, a lot of it is about, uh, you know, releasing that, like stopping that, like, that's not my good day has nothing to do with your good day. You, we can both have good days or you can have a bad day, but one way or the other, it's up to me. Yeah. I love it. Um, one of the last questions for you, you mentioned reading is on that list, uh, on the daily. So I'm curious if there's any books that, um, have heavily impacted you, any that you gift often to people that, um, even if it, whether you're reading them now uh, or have reread in the last few years and gone back to it, any any book or books that stand out to you? The one that I've read this year that has really changed uh, my life, uh, which is just the spiritual journey I've been on, is this book called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Ooh, that's a good one. Have you read that? I just read it like uh, probably over the holidays, a couple months yeah. ago. I love that book. I think about it all the time. So that's a book that I would recommend. It's just like a totally different way of looking at existence and consciousness and who you are and who your soul is. And um, if you're getting into leadership, I would look at first break all the rules, um, which is just a very specific, you know, straightforward management book. And then the book I'm reading right now is by Tom McAfee called more from less. And it's all about how capitalism has actually decoupled itself from resource consumption. And it's about how we're using less of almost everything in the world. We're using less paper than we've ever used. We're using less oil, less uh, aluminum, copper, steel, coal. And that maybe, you know, maybe we're not so terrible. Maybe we just got to create more incentives to, uh, to do that. Anyway, that's like an, I'm taking a class in climate change. And this was one of the books that they recommended. Nice. Yeah, that's something that is uh, is definitely been top of mind and, and should be is, is uh, climate change. So I've, that was what, more with less, you said? More from less, yeah. More from less, nice. Um, cool, so I know we're, we're getting wrapped up on, on time. I know that there's a lot of things that are going on. We've talked about Revenue Collective uh, quite a bit. I think, uh, you know, I can vouch for it personally. Um, you know, there's new, I think you mentioned what community-based products, I think you called it. Um, like the rising executives, the CRO school, things like that. Maybe you could just touch on that uh, just for a minute before we wrap up uh, on, you know, some of the different things outside of like just a community of events and a Slack channel uh, that, you know, you folks are building to help people, you know, get the most out of their careers, whatever that might be. Sure. We think about it in three ways, peer-to-peer learning, which is, you know, what most people call community, which is, but it's not just Slack or it's all the different ways that people can connect with each other and interact with each other. Uh, The second is um, training and certification. And we really do think that to the point of rising executives program and the CRO school that we launched, we're going to announce five new schools, basically, uh, in the next couple of months, CMO school, RevOps school, CS school, uh, a masterclass with Jocko Vanderkoy from Winning by Design on Revenue Architecture, 
Um, there's probably another one. And you can imagine that in the future, there'll be COO school, CFO school, et cetera. But um, all of those are like longer extended programs that help prepare people for for what we're talking about, which is like how to have a career, how to make sure you don't get fired, how to make sure that you negotiate well, how to make sure that you know all of the different tips and tricks that you need to do to be good. <coughs> Excuse me. And then the third thing is career services. That's just a big focus for us, which is helping create, find, helping people find jobs, helping people find talent, helping people find um, service providers like coaches or accountants or lawyers or wealth managers, just all of the things again, like around, you know, the, the most of what you use revenue collective for is to be good at your job. But, but then as we just have talked about the whole time, like there's lots and lots of times when you're going to be between jobs or change jobs and you're going to need a framework to do that. And so we invest a lot in that as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I could, I could personally vouch that. Um, I used revenue collective as I was changing jobs uh, last year and it was massively impactful in meeting new people, finding new opportunities. Um, I interviewed at a lot of companies and uh, I don't know the percentage, but probably half of them were from people that I met through Revenue Collective or someone that introduced me um, that was a member or, or something like that. So I'm grateful for the community. Uh, I'm grateful that you spent uh, a lot of time with me this morning. Um, just before we wrap up, any last words for those uh, millennial salespeople out there? And then obviously where is the best place for people to uh, reach out and, and connect with you after the show if they're interested? If you want to email me, you can Sam at revenuecollective.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, linkedin.com forward slash the word in forward slash Sam F. Jacobs. Um, my parting words of wisdom are, you know, uh, there's a there's a talk with uh, Vinod Kosla and Larry Page. And he says, you know, I mean, it's a very classic thing. Like you be you can do uh, less than you think in a quarter and way more than you think in 10 years. And there's a competitive advantage in having a long-term view. So I would encourage people to have a long-term view on their life and their career and not need instant gratification on everything right away. And if you do that, you will be, you will have an advantage over the people that are short-term focused. And then the second thing I would say is, you know, my life really began to change when I stopped making it about me and started looking to help other people. And if you want to be a great quote unquote networker, if you want to accumulate power, uh, you know, and influence, then the best way to do that is to help other people, because then you become somebody that can help other people. And then now you're somebody that helps people, which is because you have influence and power. So, you know, there's a beautiful karma uh, around just investing and helping other people and supporting other people and giving. And the more that you do that, uh, I think the more good things will happen for you. So. Just two knowledge bombs right there to close this <laughs> off. <laughs> Sam, I appreciate you, man. I'm gonna have to re-listen to that and uh, and <laughs> take some take some of that advice personally. Cool. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thanks for hosting uh, the the Revenue Collective show. I love this show, and uh, and if you know, I, I enjoyed being here. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. Cool. All right. Thanks for checking out that episode. Um, happy April. Happy Q2 to everyone out there that's getting after it. Uh, again, this podcast was brought to you by gong.io and postal.io. So great way to support me is to support our sponsors. Again, if you leave a review on Apple, I will send you a free Starbucks gift card uh, courtesy of Postal. So uh, shout out to the sponsors. Shout out to the guests today. Enjoy your day. Let's get after it. See you next time. Peace.